John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. January 7th, 1855, Charles Spurgeon, age 20, opened his Sunday morning sermon by saying, it has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. But I believe the proper study of mankind for the Christian is not man, but God. In fact, I would say the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage a person's attention, is the name, the nature, the person, and the work of the great God of the Bible. For there is something exceedingly glorious in the contemplation of God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity, and so great that as we study other subjects, we can feel a sense of self-contentedness and go away thinking, wow, I'm wise. But when it comes to this master science, the study of God, we cannot sound its depths or reach its heights. For no subject will more humble the mind than the thoughts of God or expand the mind than the thoughts of God. So would you like to lose your sorrows or drown your troubles? Would you like to wash away your cares? Then plunge yourself into the study of God. Be lost in his immensity and be found in his goodness and his grace. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, both refreshed and invigorated, for nothing can comfort the soul or calm the heart or cover the shame or speak peace to the trials as a devout study of God. That's all Spurgeon. Age 20. Isn't that incredible? So wonderfully stated. But what does any of that have to do with our passage this morning? Well, we're going to be looking at the calling of a deliverer from Exodus chapters 3 and 4. So God's in the process of raising up, prepping and preparing a man to deliver his people out of the hands of Pharaoh and out of the house of slavery. So a glorious salvation. But in doing so, God's going to reveal more about himself than in almost any other passage in the Bible. And I would suggest there's no subject more relevant for us this morning than the study of God. In fact, in Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, can you even imagine how cruel it would be to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him into Windsor, Connecticut and put him down on the town green without any explanation, leaving him to fend for himself as one who knows nothing about the United States or the English language? In the same way, we would be so unbelievably cruel to ourselves if we try to live our lives in this world without knowing anything about the God whose world it is, the God who created it and sustains it. In that case, the world becomes a very strange and painful place and our lives a very disappointing and unpleasant business at least for those who do not know God. 
Remember John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And praise God, both will be on display in our passage this morning. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. It's on page 46. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I also encourage you to grab my outline. As you're flipping, let me just give you a quick review of where we are in the book of Exodus. Chapter 1, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh is doing all that he can to suppress their growth, pressing them, even killing the baby boys, and yet God's promises are unstoppable, and the people of God are fruitful and multiply and are absolutely filling the earth. Chapter 2, a deliverer is identified, singled out, and protected. He's highlighted by the details of his birth that he is the next Noah, so he's God's deliverer. But not now and not by his own strength or for his own glory. So at 40 years old, he's exiled into the wilderness and he's exiled there for 40 years. So as we go into our text this morning, helpful for us to know at this point in time that Moses is 80 years old. That's when Exodus 2.24 happens. God heard their cry, saw their affliction, and remembered his covenant, just like he did with Noah back in Genesis 8.1. That's where we pick up the story this morning, Exodus 3, 1, and we see for ourselves, number one, the revelation of God. If you would follow along as I read chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God, that's Mount Sinai. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So A, the reality of God's revelation. Because I want you to be clear here, God is the one who initiates with Moses, right? God God is the one who makes himself known. Moses was minding his own business. As I said, at this point, he's 80 years old. He's just shepherding his father-in-law's flock in Midian. He's out in the wilderness. He's tending the sheep. He's doing fine. Verse 2 says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So God initiates. God makes himself known. God is the one who reveals himself. Now just think about that. Because that in and of itself is incredible. Because if God doesn't intervene, If God doesn't insert himself here in history with Moses, 
Not one single Israelite is going to be delivered. Not one single Israelite is going to be saved. And the same was true in your life and in my life. That if God didn't intervene, that if God didn't insert himself, we wouldn't be here this morning. And as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Praise God that He enters into our lives, that He reveals Himself to us to save us from our slavery. Now, who exactly is this angel? Well, we know from verse 6 that it's God. In fact, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God remembered his covenant, chapter 2, verse 24, and now he's reminding Moses of it, that he, in fact, is the covenant-keeping God of the entire book of Genesis. So this angel is God. But put this together. Because this angel is God, but this angel is also distinct from God. Verse 2 says the angel of the Lord or the messenger from God. So he's clearly distinct from God. And yet verse 6 says that he is God. There's only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with God and yet distinct from God other than the Spirit, one who without abandoning his full essence or diminishing his holiness is able to dwell in the presence of sinners, both affirming God's wrath while offering God's grace. That, of course, is Jesus. So I believe this is not only a theophany, but a Christophany a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. And how exactly does the imagery of fire help us understand who God is? Well, for starters, it makes us immediately think back to Genesis 15, where God appeared to Abraham in a flaming torch and a smorking furnace, and he made his original promise to save a people for himself, even at the expense of his own death, or as we know now, the death of his beloved son, But he's going to continue to reveal himself through these means. Just think forward in the book of Exodus. How does God lead his people? Exodus 13, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 14, 19 says that's the angel of God. But there's purpose to this symbolism, isn't there? Verse 2 says the bush was burning, yet not consumed. Verse 5, God says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. So God reveals himself as a God who is self-existent, meaning nobody made him. He was never created. There was never a time when he was not and then came to be. He has always been and he will always be. So he's not dependent on anyone or anything in all of creation for his existence. The bush was burning in and of itself, but not consumed. 
which also means that God is unchanging. So he's not in the process of becoming something else. He's not evolving or changing. Instead, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means God is eternal. He's always been, and he will always be. And in addition, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Or like we sang this morning, only thou art holy. There is none beside you. Perfect in power, in love, and in unity. Purity. Because to be holy is to be set apart. It's to be distinct. It's to be unique. It's to be unlike any other. Only God is holy. Now, isn't it incredible to consider this God as being your God? I mean, imagine the effect it would have on Moses to know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the one who is revealing himself and reminding him of his covenant promises is this God, who is his God. And imagine the impact on the enslaved Israelites to know that this God is their God. The one who is self-existent, unchanging, and eternal. And of course, the most important question, is this God your God this morning? Meaning, do you know this God? the God of the Bible, rather than a God of your own imagination. Because he's not some sort of grandfather figure or Santa Claus or a bellboy or a butler who gives you whatever you want whenever you think you need it. No. This is not a God to be trifled with, to be blown off or ignored. This God is holy self-existent, unchanging, and eternal. And Moses knows it. That's why verse 6 says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now don't you see God's holiness endangers sinners? And it demands reverence and respect and honor because by definition, the holiness of God rejects the sinfulness of man. So God's not a person to be trifled with or to be taken lightly or to be blown off. That's why Hebrews 10.31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, Hebrews 12.28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence And with awe. Why? Because God, this God, is a consuming fire. Moses responds rightly to this God. Humble, lowly, reverent, and in worship. But we don't just see here, A, the reality of God's revelation, but also B, the reason for God's revelation. If you would follow along as I read verses 7 to 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Notice verse 10, God speaking to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God is clearly going to save his people. And he's clearly the initiator. I've seen, I've heard, I've come down. I know, and I will deliver them and bring them out of Egypt. Where does he declare that he's going to take them? He says to the promised land. So God will save his people and take them all the way home to glory. How's he going to do that? Through Moses. Through this single man who left the riches and the wealth of living at the right hand of the most powerful person in all the known world, who was almost killed as a baby by the hands of a wicked ruler, but was divinely protected, sovereignly prepared, and exiled in the wilderness for 40 years so that he might shepherd his people, serve and sacrifice in order to save and deliver them. Who does that sound like to you? Sounds like Jesus to me. But let me just ask, have you ever felt unqualified for a job? Have you ever been asked to do something incredibly difficult, challenging, intimidating, and quite frankly, beyond your abilities, and you know it? You know, I remember holding Gabby in my hands for the very first time. And I specifically remember putting her in the car seat and driving her home. I remember the gravity of that event. And the fact that that God was entrusting to me this itty-bitty little life, literally her life in my hands, and the responsibility to drive her home in my car from the hospital all the way to my house. I remember that specifically. I remember feeling every single pothole, every speed bump, right? Every crack in the road. Why? because I felt totally unqualified. I felt beyond my abilities just to be her dad, just to take care of her, just to make sure she lived from the hospital to my house. You know, I think that's something similar to what Moses is feeling. Probably even more intense Get your arms around what's happening here. He's being called by God, commissioned by the Lord to confront the most powerful leader in the known world 
in order to free his people from slavery and then take them all the way to the promised land. That is no small task. So how does he respond? Well, honestly, he objects. He he says, I'm not qualified. He says it all the way from chapter 11, from chapter 3, verse 11, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, 17. We're given, as you can see in your outline, five arguments in a row why Moses says that he's inadequate for this task. But all that does is highlight for us this morning, be the sufficiency of God who is adequate. Now, I don't have time to read all the arguments and every response, but we are going to walk through them one at a time. Starting with number one, what I'm calling the who am I argument, verse 11. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I want you to see how the time in exile was absolutely necessary for Moses because in chapter 2, verse 12, he literally took things into his own hands and struck down the Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. So back then, it was all about doing things by his own strength and for his own glory. According to Acts 7, it took 40 years in the wilderness to get him prepared. What was the preparation, though? That he knows that he's totally inadequate for the task. So now God has him exactly where he wants him to be. Now it's not by his own effort and for his own glory. Instead, it's by God's grace, God's strength, God's ability, God's power, and therefore rightly so for God's glory. Notice how God responds. Verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What mountain? Mount Sinai. Notice, God does not give Moses a pep talk here, does he? He doesn't say, hey, don't get down on yourself, Moses. You can do it. You're good enough. You're strong enough. You're capable enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. He doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't highlight the sufficiency of Moses at all, which is what we would do. Instead, he says, the sufficiency is in me. It's in my presence because I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Essentially, he's saying, Moses, my grace is sufficient in your presence weakness. I just pause to think about that. I'm wondering if we really get that this morning, that there's literally no sufficiency whatsoever in us individually, because there's nothing that we have that we haven't received from his hand for our good. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Answer, no one. But is that based upon the fact that we are so tall, tan, and terrific? No. Be clear. 
the adequacy is not in you. It's not in me. But it's in this God. So if he is for you, and if he is with you, then you are more than adequate for any task that he sends you to do. Number two, what I'm calling the who are you argument. Verse 13, that Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to the people of Israel, I am sent you. So here God not only applies, implies who he is through the burning bush, but he declares it. He declares that he is self-existent, that to be God is to be. What one commentator calls the is-ness of God. That in every place, at every moment, in every circumstance, God just is. To be God is to be. And nothing that exists could exist apart from the one who is self-existent. God just is. I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Credible just to try to get your mind around that realization that God is ever-present that he's ever active, ever intervening because he always is and that he can't not be. And as a result, he's unchanging. He's inexhaustible. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all places, all-comprehending, the only wise God, the almighty God, which gets highlighted. Verse 19 God declares, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. Notice, by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Look at the end of verse 22. God says, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Now again, just think about the impact. That this God is Moses' God. That this God is the Israelites' God. That this God is our God, who not only promises to save, but promises to bless that he tells us he will not only deliver us, but that he will secure our greatest good. Not only will I deliver you with an outstretched hand and many acts of power, signs and wonders and glorious miracles, but oh, by the way, why don't I just give you some gold and silver for your travels? That might just come in handy on the way. Maybe you could use it to build a tabernacle for me. Do you hear what I'm saying? This God is our God, who not only saves us, but he goes 
above and beyond to bless us with every good thing. This God, their God, our God. And yet, Moses still objects. Isn't that incredible? Number three, what I'm calling the I have no credibility argument. Verse one of chapter four, Moses says to God, but behold, they will not listen to me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So essentially, what makes you think they're going to respond to me? I've been gone 40 years. Now suddenly I'm going to show up and say, God sent me to free you from your slavery. Come on, Lord. They're going to look at me and think I'm a few sandwiches short of a picnic basket. That's what's going to happen. I've got no credibility for this. How does God respond? By the way, we're only at argument three. I I want you to feel how gracious and kind God is. He's so accommodating. When I read this story, I just want to slap Moses. Like, come on, man, step up. But God doesn't do that. He is so gracious. How does he accommodate him here? Well, God gives Moses three authenticating signs to prove that he's truly God's deliverer. Deliverer, number one, God says, throw down your staff on the ground and I will turn it into a serpent. Then all you have to do, I wouldn't want to do this, but all you have to do is grab it by the tail and immediately it'll turn back into a staff. Number two, if they're still not believing, take your hand, put it inside your cloak When you bring it out, it'll become leprous. Then put it back into your cloak, and when you bring it out, it'll immediately be back to normal. Number three, if they're still not believing, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and it will turn to blood. So signs. Three signs. Let me just ask. Do you think these are just three signs Random signs that God suddenly came up with on the fly. Essentially, he's like, oh boy, we better come up with something that have no purpose or reason whatsoever. I don't think so. As you know, the kings of Egypt wore crowns adorned with serpents, but what you might not know is that the serpent was associated with the sun god, Ray. So victory over the serpent would be considered a total overthrow of Egypt's power and authority, both religious and political, and grabbing the serpent's tail would demonstrate God's sovereign rule and reign over all of Egypt. In addition, leprosy was apparently a major problem for the Egyptians who had absolutely no control over it. No power to cure the incurable. But obviously, God does. And the Nile was the heart and soul of Egypt. It was their source of endless bounty. In fact, the people sang its praises and constantly referred to it as the father of life and the mother of all. 
It literally provided all that was near and dear to them. But who has ultimate power over the Nile? That's right. This God. Let me just ask. If you had signs as clear as that, if you had signs as relevant as that, wouldn't you believe? Wouldn't you bow down and worship that God on the spot, no questions asked? Wouldn't you lose all that you have? Give up your life in order to follow him wherever he goes or wherever he sends you. More on that in a moment. First number four, the I'm not eloquent argument, chapter four, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, to which God responds, verse 11, who made man's mouth, Moses? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. So essentially, I made you. I know you. I'm calling you. I promise to be with you, and I agree with you, Moses. The adequacy is not in you, but in me. The sufficiency is completely in me. My presence, my promises, my power, my creation, and certainly my commands. So go, Moses. Just go. Now, can we be honest here and say that although we certainly feel badly for Moses, he's not acting in faith. I mean, the self-existent, unchanging, eternal God of the universe is promising to never leave him nor forsake him, to be with him, to supply him, to empower him, and to equip him. What does he do? He just keeps arguing. He even goes so far as to say, argument number five, verse 13, oh Lord, please just send someone else. And to this, God's anger is kindled. So Moses certainly has feet of clay, doesn't he? He's not a superhero. He's not an Avenger. It's not even a green beret. Instead, he is just a man, obviously a man, an inadequate man who's struggling with God's promises, wrestling with God's word, and resisting God's commands. And you know what? That should totally encourage you this morning. It should encourage you that God uses normal men and women who stumble in their faith for his eternal glory. God even uses men and women who wrestle with him. Now, I'm not saying that's a good idea. In fact, it's never a good idea to resist God's promises or reject God's commands. But the reality is we all struggle at times 
to believe the God of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that he won't use us. God in his grace is in the business of taking imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And praise God that he does. But I also want you to step back and see how all these details so clearly point us forward to the Lord Jesus. Because Moses is clearly God's deliverer. In fact, that's why he's been called and commissioned. God said back in chapter 3, verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you might bring my people out of Egypt, that you might save them, that you might deliver them. God is clearly calling Moses to save the people of God. And Moses is clearly just a man. That's obvious from his arguments of inadequacy. But God also said, Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, that I have surely seen their affliction. I have heard their cry. I have remembered my covenant and I myself will come down to deliver them and bring them up to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. You see what's going on here. This salvation will happen through a man, but also through God. Who's going to do that? Yes, Moses, the man, and yet God himself. So as we look forward, who exactly are we looking for as a savior? Ah, yes, the one and only God, man, the Lord Jesus who will deliver us from our spiritual bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and will set us free to walk in newness of life. Think about all the connections. Because just like Moses, Jesus had a humble birth. He too left the glorious riches of sitting at the right hand of the most powerful person in all the world, and he too was the son of two insignificant Israelites with an evil king trying to kill him. And there's certainly significance in Moses' name, which means I drew him out of the water. But there's no greater significance than the name of Jesus. Matthew 1.20, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means God saves. And certainly Jesus identified with his people. He became like them in all ways, yet without sin. And Jesus certainly experienced exile first in this incarnation, but also enduring not only 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness, where he certainly learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. But we've also seen some obvious differences, haven't we, between Moses and Jesus, as we should expect. So when Moses was called and commissioned, he pushed back. He hemmed and he hawed. He had this ongoing argument before he finally accepted. But did Jesus ever do that? Absolutely not. I mean, here's the most incredible thing about Christ. He never objected to what God called him to do, ever. In fact, John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father, to accomplish the work for which he sent me to do. Even the Garden of Gethsemane, as he agonized over the cross, he didn't waver. 
Instead, he declared, not my will, but thy will be done. Do you see how gloriously different that is than Moses? There's no negotiating between the son and the father, none. Instead, Jesus wholeheartedly embraced his calling as the one unique God-man sent on a mission to save his people from their sins. And the thing is, like Moses, he knew it was going to be hard. That's why we have the Garden of Gethsemane, because he also knew God promised to be with him, which is why the cross was so difficult, because for the first time ever in his life, the Father's presence was nowhere to be found. Jesus was bearing the sin of all those he came to save. And in that moment, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, which is why he had to be separated from a holy God. Sinful man cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Symbolizes the reality that Jesus took our sins upon himself and had to be separated from a holy God. If you think Moses has felt the burden, Jesus felt it all the more. As he bore our sins, And he carried our sorrows, was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. What a painful calling Jesus experienced as our Savior. And what an unbelievable thing to accept it without reservation. And like Moses, he was given signs. Signs to authenticate his mission, that indeed he was the deliverer, that he was the savior. I mean, one of the reasons for the miracles was to solidify his identity so that people would see and believe, repent and follow. But they were very purposeful, weren't they? Demonstrating his power over creation, the wind and the waves, power over diseases, the sick and the needy, power over the devil. I mean, how many times did he cast out demons? They knew exactly who he was. And his power over sin, offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. So the signs were purposeful. You want signs this morning? You have all the signs you could ever ask for in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might see and believe, repent and follow. In fact, the entire book of John was written for this purpose. John 20 verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me just ask you, is there a greater sign than his resurrection from the dead? What signs do you need this morning to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Crucified, dead and buried, rose again on the third day, demonstrating his power over sin, death, and the devil. My goodness, It's incredible to think about all that he did just to initiate with us, just to identify with us, just so that we would know who he is, so that we might believe, that we might follow him wherever he sends us. Where does that leave us this morning? 
Well, it leaves us with the need to respond. We've seen, number one, the revelation of God. We've seen, number two, the sufficiency of God. Now we're going to look at, number three, the responses to God. And we're going to grab them right out of the text. So we'll walk through three different responses that are happening right here in our text, and we'll use them by way of application. Starting with A, the rejection of God. So Moses finally embraces God's call on his life. He goes back to his father-in-law Jethro, asks for permission to head to Egypt, which is granted. But on the way, God appears to him, speaks to him again. If you look at Exodus 4, verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do for Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But notice, I will harden his heart. So he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your, your firstborn son. I recognize those are hard words and we'll certainly look at them in greater detail in the coming weeks. But what I want you to know this morning and what I believe Exodus makes abundantly clear is yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what it says, but also that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, both going on at the same time. As I said earlier in our series, the Bible has absolutely no tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So let me just say to you this morning, every single one of you, you are absolutely responsible in and of yourself, to respond to this God this morning, the God of the Bible. Because he's initiating with you right here, right now, in this place. In fact, I would say you're standing on holy ground as you hear the good news of the gospel through this word where God has demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is God and there is no other, that he is self-existent, that he is unchanging, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all places, that he is an all-comprehending God. That's the God of the Bible. But he's also gracious and kind. He's merciful and he's forgiving. And he's provided a glorious salvation for you in the Lord Jesus, complete with signs and wonders, miracles and healings, and ultimately his death, burial, and his resurrection. How should you respond? Well, please do not harden your heart against him this morning. Do not harden your heart. Instead, see, believe, repent, and follow. Let the God of the Bible be your God this morning. Just like Jesus said, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I appeal to you. Repent, believe, and follow him. Second response, B, obedience to God. Now there's a strange little story here from verse 24 to verse 26 about God wanting to kill Moses all of a sudden. So Zipporah, his wife, circumcises their son, and suddenly all is fine and dandy. Now, at first glance, it seems totally out of place. But the story isn't all that difficult to understand because essentially you can't be God's deliverer if you aren't keeping God's covenant. So that's actually very straightforward. And again, points us forward to the Lord Jesus, the only one who has perfectly kept God's law. But through faith in Christ, we are also called and commanded to be those who walk in obedience to him. So let me appeal to you to learn from our text. To not be arguing with God. To not be negotiating with God, to not be struggling with God's promises, wrestling with God's word, or resisting God's commands. But instead, to know that the God of the Bible is your God this morning. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, David and Daniel, Matthew and Mark, James and John, and all the other saints throughout all of history. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he still rules and he still reigns over all creation. So let us trust him rather than arguing and negotiating with him. Let us rest in his good promises and his good commands in our life and therefore obey him. If this God is for us, who can be against us? Which means we have total freedom to not be afraid of superpowers who oppress us or sin that entangles us or even death that threatens us. What a glorious gift just to know this God, the God of the Bible. Last response, see the worship of God. Look at how this section ends, Exodus 4, 29. It tells us, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke. What did he say? All the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people. Notice verse 31. And the people believed. So all of Moses' arguments were for naught. Why? Because God was with him and God was for him and God did exactly what God promised that he would do. So when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped him. This God, the God of the Bible. Now remember where we started this morning. 
J.I. Packer saying, to not know the God of the Bible is like sentencing yourself to a life of misery and despair. So for any of you this morning, you choose to go that route is to choose your own destruction. I appeal to you for your own good. Know the God of the Bible. Because the benefits are unbelievably incredible, just like Spurgeon said. Who would like to lose their sorrows or drown their troubles or wash away their clairs? Then plunge yourself into the study of God, be lost in his immensity and be found in his goodness and grace. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, both refreshed and invigorated. For nothing can comfort the soul or calm the heart or cover the shame or speak peace to the trials of life as a devout study of God. May we be a people who rightly know the God of the Bible and rightly respond to him in worship and praise. Allow me to pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for its instruction. I pray that we would be a people who not only know about the God of the Bible, but that we would know him by faith, that we would believe in him, we would rest in him, that we would know that if he is for us, then who can be against us? That we would know that you are always present, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have experienced the greatest gift ever, the salvation of our souls, but you have blessed us well beyond that. So may we be a people who obey you, believe in you, and follow wherever you send us. And in all that we do, may we worship your holy name. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.